Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 11 if you have a Bible. And uh, if you are new with us, what we do is we open up the Bible and we work our way through it section by section. We sometimes will spend months in a book. In the case of Romans, this is, I think, our 33rd week in uh, this letter, which is the greatest letter ever written. And you think about that, there's a lot of amazing uh, literature out there, but this is the greatest letter ever written, written by God himself through the Apostle Paul. And so we want to take great pains to understand it well, but of course, not just to understand, but also to live in light of what God has revealed a few days ago, I was talking to uh, a man who's actually a pastor in another state, and he said to me, he said, what are we going to do uh, come November with all this election stuff? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, I really fear that this upcoming presidential election will not only divide the nation, but I think it will divide our church, the churches. I said, how do you figure? He said, well, you know, we're already kind of on pins and needles with each other. We're afraid to say what we really feel at times because we wonder... What is that person going to think of us? What, what might we be labeled if we're honest? When someone asks us a question, we want to know at times we're kind of suspicious. We want to know, hey, what's really behind that? What is she really trying to say? And he said, I really fear that come election time, we're just not going to be honest with each other anymore. We're not going to, be, we're not going to feel the, the level of confidence or comfort with each other to be truthful in, in how we feel. And I was reminded of uh, a saying that Martin Luther had some 500 years ago. He said, this was kind of his motto, peace if possible, truth at all costs. In other words, yeah, we want to be at peace with each other. That's a great thing, but truth is what must prevail. And I'm afraid that in 21st century North America, the mantra is this instead, truth if possible, peace at all costs. Because, you know, we don't want to be canceled and we don't want to be uh, mislabeled. No one wants to lose a job or a friend because of a personal conviction. So again, we're accustomed to treading lightly around everyone. And and when we do give an answer, we want to qualify it uh, with a thousand footnotes. But the reality is we know this as people who are sin cursed and we carry around the baggage of the flesh. We need people to be honest with us and we need to be honest with other people because we all have blind spots. We all have those areas, those, those sin tendencies, those proclivities that, that we, we're not even aware of at times. And we need people around us who actually love us enough and care about us enough to be truthful with us. Uh, sometimes we actually need honest and loving confrontation. Well, in the second part of Romans 11, Paul writes to confront a blind spot that the Gentiles in the church at Rome seem to have, namely their arrogant belief that God had replaced Israel with them, the Gentiles. And so Paul would make it clear throughout Romans 11 that God has not abandoned his promises to Israel. And the Gentiles need to be more self-aware. There's a great, uh, I like blues music. There's a great uh, blues song written in 1957, covered by a few other people, but it was written by Bo Diddley, And it's called, Before You Accuse Me. And the song says, Before You Accuse Me, Take a Look at Yourself. You're you're saying, I'm spending my money on other women, but you're taking money from someone else. Well, that's kind of the vibe, not, not exactly, but that's kind of the vibe in Romans 11, where Paul says to the Gentiles, look, before you accuse the Jewish people of ignoring God and rejecting Christ, you need to take a look at yourself. 
Remember where you were when God got a hold of your heart. Remember your own fickle obedience. And so now you have to consider, again, where you were when God saved you. And as a result, realize it's all by his grace and you, in fact, are no better. So in the passage we're in this morning, we're going to cover Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. We're going to see three things this morning. What does God want to see in his world? Which I make clear in here. What is he doing to bring that about? And what should be our response? So what does God want to see in his world? What is he doing to bring that about? And what should be our response? So uh, Romans 11, let me start by reading verses 25 through 27. Here reads the word of the Lord. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So one of the things to, that we have to keep remembering, and, and you know, I do keep bringing it up as we're working our way through Romans, is the hatred that existed between the Jews and Gentiles in first century Rome. So it's no understatement to say that first century Jews hated Gentiles. And it's no, no overstatement to say that first century Gentiles hated Jews. Now part of that stemmed from racial and ethnic hatred. Part of it stemmed from religious differences, different religious convictions. So the Jewish folks had all kinds of special, you know, holidays and customs that the Gentiles balked at. And the Jews regarded the Gentiles as sort of polytheistic, those who worshiped all kinds of gods, godless pagans. And so you had this very deep-seated, really a visceral hatred between these two groups. And each group condemned the other. So the Jews had the law. We've seen this already in our study, which they believe was only for their community. The Jews thought the Gentiles were disgusting, immoral, idolatrous people who had no hope of being saved. Now, how do you think the Gentiles responded to those accusations? Well, they said, yeah, you were given the law. Uh, you were the covenant people. You were God's chosen nation, and you still rejected God's Messiah. So God has replaced you, they said. God is done with you, and he has now made us, non-Jews, the object of his affection. And Paul says, actually, that's not the case at all. Yes, a partial hardening has taken place of Israel. That is, many of Israel, most of Israel persisted in unbelief which is nothing short of God's sovereign activity. But as the gospel is being fully proclaimed to the Gentiles, verse 25, and before the full number of Gentiles appointed unto salvation has believed, many of Israel will believe the gospel and be saved, Paul says. And then he says something so controversial and so difficult that Christians have speculated and debated over it for centuries. He says, all Israel will be saved. Now, we have to ask, what in the world does that mean? Um, those who are dogmatic, those who are more literal, say all means all. All means everyone without exception. So they, they believe that every single Jewish person will eventually be saved. Now, we know that can't mean that because already to this point, millions of Israelite people 
or at least hundreds of thousands by a, a conservative estimate, had died and rejected Jesus all the way to their death. Now, by 2024, it's fair to say, we can say millions of Jewish people have rejected Christ as a Messiah and have died uh, in that state of rejection. So, you know, we don't believe that all means all in that sense. Um, we also know that in the Bible, all doesn't always mean all without exception. Now, let me just give you a couple of examples. When Jesus is sending his 12 disciples into the, to the world, he warns them that they can accept opposition and indeed persecution, and things are not going to go well for them. In fact, he says to them, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. And then he says to them in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all, if you have the NIV, I think it says all men, by all for my name's sake. Well, surely Jesus doesn't mean to inform his disciples that every single person they come across without exception will hate them. We actually know that he couldn't possibly have meant that because what happened when these disciples went out, some people welcomed them into their home and some people provided hospitality to them. So all doesn't, can't possibly mean here all without exception. Jesus is not saying every single person apart from you that you encounter is going to hate you. That's not what he's saying. Uh, Jesus is saying when you go out, people you see everywhere and all kinds of people will oppose you and in fact hate you. Now here's another example. Luke 21, we're told that while Jesus was teaching in Jerusalem, he's teaching, uh, it said, the text says, and early in the morning, all the people came to hear him, uh, came to him in the temple to hear him. Now we know that not every single person in Jerusalem came to hear Jesus teach, but every kind of person imaginable, people from all different kinds of backgrounds, the poor, the peasants, the merchants, the religious leaders, they were all captivated and, and sometimes infuriated by his teaching. So sometimes all means all without exception, everyone. Sometimes it means that. Sometimes all means all without distinction. In other words, people of all backgrounds and uh, nationalities and races and education histories and everything else. And sometimes in the Bible, all just simply means an overwhelming majority. And I could take you to places and show you where this word appears in all these different ways. But, and sometimes the word all is used just to communicate a whole bunch of people. So it's used more colloquially, more, more casually, if you will. Well, here in Romans 11, when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he couldn't, we know he doesn't mean every single person ever, every single Jewish person ever born. That can't possibly be true. Uh, he, it could mean a mass amount of Jewish people will be saved. Or he could mean that all true Israel, all elect Israel will be saved. That remnant that Paul talked about earlier, that Pastor Chris explained last week. Well, since Paul is contrasting the Gentiles with ethnic Israel in verses 25 and 28, I think what Paul's referring to is a mass amount of Jewish people will be saved. New Testament scholar Frank Thielman explains it this way, all Israel does not mean every single Israelite, but as with the use of the expression elsewhere in scripture to a group of Israelites large enough that they can represent the whole people. Now this also doesn't you know, for, for those of you who love to study the end times, and, and I know we have people like that, and that's, that's good and fine, um, but it also doesn't necessarily have to mean that a mass of Jewish people will receive Christ all at one time, say by way of a huge revival 
at the end of time. It could mean over a long period of time, a growing number of Jewish people will confess Jesus Christ as Lord and be saved. And actually, this very thing is happening right now. Right now, there are some 15 million Jewish people in the world, around 7 million in Israel, some 6 plus million in the United States or North America, and then another 2 million in other countries. And the overwhelming majority of this group of Jewish people, um, they have rejected Jesus as Messiah. They've rejected Jesus as the Savior of the world. Uh, Most estimates say less than 3%. But, and here's what's fascinating. According to a recent survey done by the Barna Group, among Jewish millennials, those are folks born between 1984 and 1999, among Jewish millennials, some 20% say that they recognize and accept that Jesus was God. So among this younger demographic of Jewish folks, there's a growing percentage willing to accept that Jesus was God. In fact, one prominent Christian ministry to Jews in Israel writes this. We're receiving so many requests for New Testaments, information, help, and advice on what to do after receiving Yeshua, that's just Hebrew for Jesus as Messiah, that the team can't keep up with it all. We get messages of this nature all the time these days. Truly, we are seeing uh, things that have not been seen before in the modern state of Israel. That's pretty amazing, actually. So these verses in Romans 11 are the very challenging stuff. And and yes, I'm, I want to be the first to admit, a lot of people have interpreted these in a variety of ways. And I'll even go, I'm, I have no problem saying people far smarter than I am have interpreted this in a variety of ways. I, I, I get that. Um, but we want to try to make sense of it to the, to the best of our ability. And I think we have to at least say what's being said here is not only is it wrong to say that God has replaced Israel, um, it's right to say that he's working in such a way to bring about the salvation of a growing number of Jewish folks. Now, for most of us in this room, I don't know, 98% plus probably, um, who are not Jewish, what does that mean for us? Well, it goes to show what God has in mind for his church, or as I mentioned in my intro, what God wants to see happen and is making happen in our world. So here's our first point this morning. True to his promise... God is fashioning a people from every nation, including the nation of Israel. You know, we, you hear a lot about, and I don't know if you're reading the same, some of the same stuff, but we hear a lot about the demise of Christianity you know, in the world, and churches are closing down. This is true. A lot of churches are closing their doors. In fact, a few months ago, in my opening illustration for a sermon, I told you about the church that I grew up in, shuttered the doors, and, and uh, there's a building there, but... That church no longer exists. And so we hear a lot about Christianity, you know, the demise of it, how it's on this rapid decline and so on. Um, more and more people are identified as, as nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, that is to say they're not religious. But all this fear-mongering, I have to tell you, is a bit overwrought. Here's what I mean by that. The church is not only surviving, it's thriving, it's growing just in places that we might not expect. See, as Americans, we're, we're so accustomed to seeing things through our American lens. It's a natural thing to do, I suppose. Um, and it's true that Christianity in America has declined. 
But in the rest of the world, Christianity is exploding in growth and continues to grow. So let me just, I couldn't, let me show you this chart and I didn't really know how to do it. Any, it this is from the World Encyclopedia of Christianity, the most recent edition. So put this chart, so this is the best sort of rendering of it I, that I could come up with. But if you see on the far left, in 1900, Christianity was the, you know, of course, the dominant religion in, in Europe and, and you see in North America and in the rest of the world, Africa, Asia, Latin America, very few Christians. But over time, and I'm not going to take long on this chart, but skip all the way to your far right, you see the sliver that represents North America, kind of that medium blue. You probably can't even read this from where you are, but that medium blue toward the top right, that's North America. That actually is shrinking. But in places, what they call the global south, sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, Latin America, Christianity is absolutely exploding in growth. And so we, uh, several years ago, was part of a church uh, that planted a new work, a new church in uh, Haberoni, Botswana, which is a little country just north of South Africa. And in places like Botswana and Zambia and Kenya and other, other countries in Africa, Christianity is absolutely exploding. God is doing these incredible revivals in other parts of the world. Places like Latin America, some places, uh, you know, in, in Asia and Southeast Asia. So God is doing a remarkable work. I was uh, worshiping at a little church in a remote village in South Africa about 15 years ago, and the church building was literally a tin shack. I mean, it had been, it was, you know, you engineers would have had a fit. It was very poorly constructed. It was just hanging on with ropes and, and you know, wire and stuff. Um, but in that church, of uh, all these South African brothers and sisters in Christ, they are worshiping so joyfully, and more than half of the church had within the past year buried a loved one who died from AIDS. So for some, it was their children. For some, it was a parent or grandparent. For some, uh, it, it was a cousin. Um, and yet, they had such joy and expectation as they, as they worshiped the risen Christ who had redeemed them. So we want to be a church. We see this is God's plan. He is He's fashioning a people from every nation, and we want to be a church, and we want to be Christians who care about and are deeply devoted to seeing the gospel go out all around the globe. Now look at verses 28 through 32. As regards the gospel, they, this is uh, Israel here, are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are, are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, now Paul's talking to the Gentiles here, uh, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, disobedience of the Israel people, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Now, Pastor Chris talked about this a little bit last week. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. That's a lot. That's a lot in there. Verse 28 says that unbelieving Israel is God's enemy. God is at odds with them because they have rejected Christ and his gospel. And this, by the way, is true of anyone, regardless of your, your ethnicity or nationality. Everyone who rejects Christ and his gospel is an enemy of God. Someone who may say they're spiritual or 
They may say, you know, they're really in tune with the world or whatever. Anyone who rejects Jesus is not a friend with, uh, with God. God's not cool with them. Um, even though he is their creator, he's not their heavenly father. He is their righteous judge. As C.S. Lewis famously said in Mere Christianity, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs, to, who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his, ar- his arms. Laying down your arms is what Christians call repentance. In the case of Israel, Paul says the enmity serves a divine purpose, verse 28b, as regards election. That is, when it comes to God choosing this nation as his own possession, they are loved for the sake of the patriarchs, their forefathers, the ones to whom God made this covenant so early on. doesn't mean that God will overlook their rejection of the gospel because they come from Abraham. Jesus corrects this notion uh, in John's gospel. It means that God, who is always true to his promises has not rejected Israel in preference for the Gentiles. He will follow through on his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, just not the way that we or anyone else expected. In fact, verses 30 and following, Paul brings uh, it back to the Gentiles and says, you were disobedient, but received mercy because of their disobedience. In other words, because Israel rejected the gospel message, it was delivered to the Gentiles. Remember the context here. Paul's confronting these arrogant Gentiles who are saying so proudly and defiantly to their their Jewish uh, counterparts in the church at Rome, God has rejected you. God has replaced you. God has no uh, interest in you anymore. And Paul makes it clear that the Gentiles have also rejected the gospel. They too were disobedient. And yet God brought them to saving faith. The same must be concluded about the Jewish people as well. Uh, that God can reach them and indeed will bring some to saving faith. Now, hang in there with me because I know this is a lot of dense stuff. Look at verse 32 again. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, here's that word, all again. Is God saying that God will, is Paul saying that God will save everyone? Is Paul a, a universalist? As he's saying, look, it doesn't matter because in the end, everybody's going to be saved anyway. Of course not. Early in the same letter, Paul has lamented with great agony that his own people, the Jewish people, have rejected Jesus. In fact, he goes so far at one point to say, look, I would rather go to hell myself if it means that, God's, that my people, my fellow Jewish people could be saved. So Paul's not saying in any way that everybody is going to come to Christ. He's not a universalist uh, at all. He, he's saying... Um, He's not saying that everyone will be saved in the end or even that God will show mercy on everyone in the end. The word for in verse 32 is is important. Paul says for God has consigned. He's he's summarizing what he's just said in verses 30 through 31. And in summary, what Paul says is that God is merciful to all kinds of people. He saves all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles rich and poor, educated and uneducated, religious and irreligious, those with horrible pasts and those who believe they've kept themselves clean. He takes those who are rebels and he makes them sons and daughters. He takes those who, that everybody else has written off 
and he makes them friends with God by bringing them to repentance and faith. He takes outcasts and he makes them honored guests. He takes those who have a rap sheet a mile long and he says, you are forgiven because of Christ. You know, there's, a, there's been a lot of talk uh, in the last couple of months really about this, about the he gets us ads, you know, and again, Pastor Chris alluded to that last week. Especially the one shown during the Super Bowl. There's all kinds of discussion and social media is just absolutely blown up over this. And, and, and the, the truth is that there is some, there's some legitimacy to the fact that he gets us. Of course there is. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to lose friends. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be exhausted. He knows what it's like to get sick. He knows what it's like to suffer pain. So yeah, in that sense, he gets us. But what makes Jesus so amazing is not that he gets us, but that he saves us. He redeems us. He transforms us. So I just happened to, I don't know, I came across this video ad the other day and it said, you can Google this later, but it said the, the Super Bowl, ad, the ad that the Super Bowl should have shown and I think I Google it by, he gets us and then he saves us. But um, it's, it's this video campaign called He Saves Us. And it shows a series of, this is so powerful, shows a series of images of people that Jesus has redeemed and transformed. A former witch, a former atheist, a former jihadist, a former KKK member. These are all real people who are, whose images are, in this video, a former drug addict, a former gang leader, a former drag queen and prostitute, a former abortionist. Talk about a powerful image. Here's a doctor who assisted in abortions on one half of the screen and the other half just smiling ear to ear holding a baby that he just helped to deliver. A former transgender, a former porn star, a former new age guru, a former lesbian activist. These are all real people rescued, saved, delivered, forgiven, transformed by the power of God and the glory of the gospel. So here's what Paul's getting at in this very complicated section for our second point. No one is beyond the scope or the power of the gospel. God can and will redeem all those, everyone he chooses to save. I love to hear I love to hear stories of testimonies of faith, you know, really of all ages. But, you know, those who are, that God brings to saving faith at a later age, you know, 40s, 50s, 70s. They're just such powerful testimonies. And for so many, they, they talk about they were running from God. And the last thing in the world they wanted was to surrender to God's authority and rule. They didn't want, they didn't want God. They didn't want a king to reign over them. But even though they're running from God, not wanting to surrender, God overwhelmed them with his love and his grace. He didn't just love them and leave them where they are and said, look, I get you. I know what you're going through. No, he actually brought them to saving faith, redeemed them and transformed them. And what Paul's saying here is God does this for people of every nation, every race, every ethnicity, every background. In fact, one day, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will join with a mass number of Jewish folks, and they will all worship the only true and living God. And they will praise the name of the only true Savior, Jesus himself. And this power of God, this mercy of God, this incredible plan of salvation 
it leads Paul to basically stop what he's doing and break out in doxology. Look at verses 33 to 36. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And as we just sang together, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So, you know, we, we preach through Romans, we were preaching through Romans and we spent, I don't know, six, seven weeks between Romans eight and Romans nine, Romans 10. And people have had a hard time with this. Some people have. And we've met with people. And I've had discussions about election and about predestination and about God's sovereignty and all of those things. Well, as Paul finish, finishes writing, you know, they didn't have chapters back then, but what we call Romans chapters 9 through 11, he finishes writing that. And he is so overwhelmed by the glory of God and the power of God, and the majesty of God, and the mercy of God, that he just breaks out in worship. So, so this is Paul's conclusion to all the questions that have been raised in Romans 9 through 11. Why would God choose some people and not others? Why does the gospel pierce the hearts of some and leave others unfazed or even angry? Why would God harden someone's heart? Why have so many Jewish folks rejected Jesus as Messiah? Is God unfair? Is God unjust? Has the gospel lost its power? What's, God, what's Paul's answer to that? It's not, a, it's not a detailed explanation. It's not a systematic theology book. That's, those are great. Paul's answer is praise. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. In other words, when I think about all these things, Paul says, it just leads me to worship. God knows everything. We know hardly anything. God's wisdom is infinite. Our wisdom is limited and faulty at best. How often do we rely on our own wisdom and we get ourselves in a mess? God's ways are above our ways. His ways are above our finding out. His judgments are inscrutable, Paul says. In other words, they're so mysterious Nobody can put them in an outline. Nobody can fully uh, understand them. God's ways do not conform to our preconceived notions of how things ought to be. I gave this message the title, Inside the Mind of God. But I guess in a way you can call that clickbait. I don't know, is that, is that a thing? Anybody ever use that word anymore? Um, because if you click on the message, if anybody clicks on this message later and they want to find out what's going on in the mind of God, they're not going to find out anything. I mean, at least specific, because no one knows what's going on in the mind of God. That's what Paul's saying. Only God knows. And the more we try to climb in, as Martin Luther said, to climb into the mind of God and figure it out, the farther away we find that we are from truly grasping it. Because God is the living God. He is the almighty, all-powerful, holy, and majestic king. And Paul, as he thinks about all these mind-bending questions, all these difficult questions. He just, he finished it. He just has worship. And then Paul says in verses 34 through 35, quoting from the prophet Isaiah and the book of Job, or summarizing there, he says, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? 
Who's given him a gift that he should be repaid? Paul's expressing the self-sufficiency of God. Do you realize God never learns anything? God never finally figures something out. He doesn't depend on his creatures to, to discern things. He possesses all wisdom and understanding. And then Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's yet another way of Paul saying, God doesn't need anything from anyone. He doesn't rely on us to figure things out. He never at any point has to make adjustments to his sovereign plan. He's not learning as he goes along. He doesn't need us for anything. But we need him for everything. Not just salvation, which we need him for. We need him for everything. We need him for every good work we do. We need him for every noble thought we do. We need him for every discovery we arrive at. We need God for everything. And if everything exists depends on God's for his very existence, and if everything in history happens according to God's sovereign plan and power, then what Paul's getting is how can we say to God, well, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that? Or how can we say to God, well, you know what? I think it's unfair that you did that. Or how can we say to God, well, I don't think you should operate like that. No, we can only say, you're God, and I'm not. And for the things I can understand and for the things I cannot understand, I will praise you and give you glory. John Murray, great New Testament scholar, writes this, God is the source of all things in that they have proceeded from him. He is the agent through whom all things subsist and are directed toward their proper end. And he is the last end to whose glory all things will redound. Here's our final point this morning. A proper consideration of God silences our objections and compels us to worship. Now, this doesn't mean, I had a great conversation in a small group this morning, it doesn't mean that we can't plead with God. It doesn't mean that we can't ask God questions. It doesn't mean that we can't, even in the true sense of the word, argue with God. In the sense of, God, I just don't understand. I don't get it. Help me. It doesn't mean that we can't cry out to God in our distress. We should do all of those things. God is not put off by our questions. He's not annoyed by our prayers and our concerns. But in the end, we must come to this realization. God, you are the only true God glorious in splendor, limitless in power, infinitely wise, and abounding in love and faithfulness. Your ways are above my ways, and they always will be. And so who am I? Who am I to tell you, God, that you ought to do things a certain way? Now, just as a side note, when I was writing this part of the sermon, I, I just added, I hope that in your regular time with the Lord, you've incorporated a part of that that's worship. So in your regular prayer time, you know, yeah, we have confession and we bring our specific requests to the Lord and uh, we appeal to God for our country as we're instructed to do and for persecuted believers all around. So we have all of those things, but, but worship ought to be part of our regular prayer time. Our regular prayer time ought not just be us asking God for things, but us confessing and adoring and praising God for who he is. When we are confronted with who God is and who he has revealed himself to be in the Holy Scriptures, it must lead us to worship. 
I have a, a pastor friend who's uh, probably the last person on earth you would ever expect to be a pastor. Uh, he was such a, a bad kid, I guess you might say, when he was a teenager, got kicked out of his house when he was 16. And he just was so disrespectful, and everything his parents said, he just really spurned and balked, and, and he, he was just all about doing his own thing, and he just would not be told what to do. And ultimately, his parents, very loving Christian parents, they got to a point where they said, we just can't, we can't survive with this level of angst and this, you know, what you're doing to our home, the unrest and, and the lack of peace and so on. And if you're going to go do your own thing and party and live your life, and ignore, you have to do that on your own. So he was kicked out of his house and ended up hopping from one place to another. And, and then he got a job in a surf shop in Florida and he's working, you know, just doing some retail stuff. And, um, but he was so, he, he, by his own testimony, he was so empty and confused and just miserable. And so one Sunday morning after a long Saturday night, he decided he was going to go to church. He said, you know what? I've not been to church in years. And so he, he didn't know where to go. So he just started, uh, from his, the place that he was staying, just walk, started walking and came across a church, just happened to be a 160 year old Presbyterian church right in the heart of town. And he went in there, and he'd he, he be the first to tell you, I don't really remember much about what the sermon was about. But he said, through the worship and through the scripture readings and through the liturgy, I was so confronted with the majesty of God that I was just undone. I just was absolutely undone that I lived in such rebellion against the one true and living God. And God brought him to saving faith, God reconciled him to his parents. He would shortly thereafter get married and, and go off to seminary. Um, but he said, I was just brought to my knees by this awesome and mysterious God. And, this, and God turned his life around. Again, he's pastoring a church now. He was enthralled by the awesome nature and the mystery of God. The, the Bible says that God is so mysterious that we cannot fully figure him out. But here's something that's so encouraging for us and that we desperately need. One of the greatest mysteries about God, in fact, maybe the, one of the most uh, incredible things of all, is a mystery that God has revealed to us. And that mystery is how sinful and rebellious men and women and children can be made right with him. Saving us, forgiving us would come at great cost to God himself. Our sins and rebellion had to be dealt with even when we lay down our arms, as C.S. Lewis described it. God can't just ignore our past. He can't wink at our sinful rebellion. He can't gloss over our sins, your sins and my sins. They all had to be dealt with. And the mystery, Paul says in a different letter, the mystery of the gospel is that God dealt with our sins and rebellion by actually taking on flesh himself. The second person of the triune God came to earth to live the obedient life that God has actually commanded us to live, but we've all failed to live. And not only did he live for us, fully obeying all of, of God's commands, but he also died for us. The death that actually we were consigned to because of our disobedience, the death that we deserved. So that when we believe in Jesus, we, we turn from our sins and turn to God in repentant faith, we are forgiven. That's what the promise that I didn't have time to really camp out on, verse 26. That's the promise that God's going to take away the sins of those who believe. And this is the promise that God makes to you today. 
It's a promise that God makes to me today. If we believe in who Jesus was, who Jesus is, that he actually did fully live, lived a completely obedient life, fully human, fully divine, fully God, lived an obedient life, died a cruel and brutal death that we deserve, was raised again on the third day, now exalted in heaven at the right hand of the Father. If we believe that stuff, God says, I will take your sins away and I will make you brand new and I will give you life with meaning and purpose and hope and destiny. That is to say the hope of a future. Does Jesus get us? Yes, in a manner of speaking. But even better than that, he saves us, he forgives us, he transforms us, and he gives us a life we never had before. One, again, with purpose and joy. And it's a life that won't end when we die either, but one that will result in eternal bliss with our Father who is in heaven. And all this is, you know, Paul, again, Romans 9 through 11, all this difficult stuff, Paul ends by worshiping the true and living God.